Hi there. You should be standing with your back to a large stone building on the sidewalk opposite number 14, Rue Monsieur le Prince. You should see the number in white figures on a blue tile just to the right of the doors on the second floor. Do you see those tall, ornately hand-carved brown doors between two dark green storefronts? Now I'd like you to be across the street from these doors, so go ahead and cross the street if you're not already there, and face the wooden doors. Take a look up at the arch of the wooden doors. On either side, you will see a beautifully sculpted woman. If you look closely, you'll see that the one on the left is reading a book. The one on the right is striking a languid, somewhat libertine pose. Look just to the left of the woman with the book, between two windows up on the second floor, and you should see a marble plaque with gold writing. The inscription reads, The black American literary figure Richard Wright lived in this building from 1948 to 1959. So, what was Richard Wright, the most famous African-American writer of the mid-20th century, doing here in Paris? Well, that's what I'm here to tell you about. Paris has long been seen as, I guess you could say, a refuge for African-American writers. And so today, you, as I have for the past two decades, are going to follow in the footsteps of some of the authors who came to Paris in search of freedom, acceptance, and a little distance from the suffocating racism in the United States. And the story I want to tell you centers on two of the greatest, Richard Wright and James Baldwin. Though they came to Paris for similar reasons, they ended up with very different perspectives on race relations both here and in the U.S., and on what it meant to be a black writer tackling these issues. Their differences would lead to a dramatic confrontation and one of the most bitter feuds in American literary history. And it all went down right here on the left bank of Paris, in Saint-Germain-des-Prés, a neighborhood renowned for its literary cafes that have attracted writers and intellectuals for centuries. My name is Jake Lamar, I'm an African-American expat and author of the novels Rendezvous 18th, Ghosts of Saint-Michel, and other works set in Paris. I arrived in the French capital in September of 1993, inspired by these great African-American writers and their relationship to this city. To my mind, Richard Wright, James Baldwin, and the lesser-known Chester Himes were all astonishingly gifted writers and powerful witnesses of the black experience in their time. They each had such a life-changing impact on me personally that I recently wrote a play called Brothers in Exile that both pays tribute to them and explores their complicated relationship. And I want to show you how their experiences in Paris continue to influence African-American writers today. All right, let's get started. The first place I want to take you to is one of the most prestigious publishing houses of 1950s Saint-Germain-des-Prés. And on our way, let me tell you about Richard Wright. If you're facing the plaque dedicated to Richard Wright, take a left. So walk along the big stone wall until you reach the corner up ahead. Richard Wright was born in 1908 in rural Mississippi, where he grew up in abject poverty. Like many other African-Americans who were part of what is known as the Great Migration, he moved from the Deep South to Chicago, and later on to Harlem, where he wrote his groundbreaking novel, Native Son. We'll get into the details later, but keep in mind that this novel, Native Son, would be at the root of Baldwin and Wright's angry clash. Okay, we're going to cross the street diagonally here, towards that place at the corner called Les Racines. We're going to the former headquarters of one of the biggest French publishing houses. You should have just turned on the Rue Racine, and you should be on the side of the street with the odd numbers. We'll be stopping across the street in front of number 26. Okay, stop here for a moment. Across the street, do you see those black iron gates covering the windows at number 26? 
Look up at the stone balcony. You should see the words Librairie e Flammarion written in big brown letters. They're just above the tall windows. When Wright and Baldwin were here, this neighborhood was home to a lot of major publishing houses, which is one reason why so many writers, American and French, spent so much time here. Flammarion is one of the biggest publishing houses in France, and this is where their headquarters used to be. It's since been replaced by the headquarters of Bonpoint, a luxury children's clothing store. As you'll see, the neighborhood of Saint-Germain has changed quite a bit in the last 60 years, and many of the places that made this the center of the French literary world are no longer here. Yet you'll also see that, in many ways, this neighborhood pays homage to that literary golden age, with book and antique shops, and an atmosphere here that is still quite special. So the legacy of that time still remains in Saint-Germain. It's just dressed up a bit fancier now. Let's keep moving. Follow this street in the same direction as before. You should be passing a lovely flower shop with a wooden storefront. We'll pass a couple of bookstores on this street to your left. And as you approach the corner up ahead, you'll notice the Grand Odeon Theater, that majestic building in front of you. It dates all the way back to the late 1700s and is still one of France's six national theaters. At the corner here, take the crosswalk to your right, heading towards that storefront with the images of books and authors in the windows. Walk past it, and we'll be turning right down that little street. By the way, that storefront there is now a Flammarion press office. You should be on your way down Rue Casimir de la Vigne, passing a reddish-brown storefront to your right. Let's pick up with Richard Wright. In 1940, he published Native Son, a searing novel about Bigger Thomas, a black youth from a Chicago ghetto who becomes a cold-blooded killer. But the wealth and fame that the novel brought Wright didn't protect him from American racism. In New York, in 1945, his three-year-old daughter was denied use of a department store's bathroom. She was forced to pee in the gutter, like a dog. Now Wright was actually married to a white woman, and he felt that if his biracial daughter could be treated this way in New York, there was little hope for racial equality in the USA. So in 1946, he set off for Paris with his family, Paris had been a magnet for African-Americans long before Wright arrived. It all started with the black American soldiers who came to France during the First World War. In America, this was an age of hardcore segregation and lynchings. So it was a revelation for black soldiers to discover that they were treated with dignity and respect in France. By the way, at the bookshop with the brown storefront at the corner there, L'Escalier, was one of Wright's favorites. He even held a book signing here. Okay, look both ways and take the crosswalk to your left toward the bookstore with the dark green storefront. Now take the crosswalk in front of you and turn left down the street. Did you cross the street? You should be walking along a concrete wall towards the red storefront just ahead. We're going to the famous English-language bookstore, San Francisco Books. Stop here. You should be in front of San Francisco Books. So, before we go in, let me tell you a few important things about James Baldwin. While we're outside, stand to the side of the books on display so that you're not blocking the entrance. Baldwin was 16 years younger than Richard Wright and grew up in New York City in a poor, deeply religious family. Even though he didn't grow up in the Deep South like Wright, he still felt the effects of everyday racism in New York. It was actually a novel by Baldwin, Go Tell It on the Mountain, that first inspired me to come to Paris. I was 12 or 13 when I read the book, and it had a profound impact on me. It's an autobiographical novel about a sensitive young black man growing up in a difficult family in Harlem. And there I was, a young black man growing up in a difficult family, just a few subway stops away in the Bronx. So I asked my teacher, 
who is James Baldwin? And the first thing he said was, he lives in Paris. And that was just such an exotic idea to me, that someone with a background like Baldwin's would live in Paris, a place I only knew from television. Later that year, I read Black Boy, Wright's powerful memoir about growing up in the Deep South, and it moved me just as much as Baldwin's novel. Then I discovered that Wright had also lived in Paris. It wasn't until much later that I learned about the relationship between Richard Wright and James Baldwin, which was very intense, very complicated, and, of course, the topic of our walk today. We have a reserved copy of James Baldwin's essays that's waiting for you at the counter. When you get inside, tell the person at the desk that you're with Detour, and they'll give you the book. Then head to the back of the store so that you don't block the entrance. Pause me and press play when you are in the back and ready to read. Do you have James Baldwin's collection of essays? Turn to pages 660 and 661 and read the passages that are highlighted about the reasons James Baldwin left the U.S. Pause me and press play when you're done reading. So, now you understand a little bit more about why Baldwin came here. This gives you an idea of how oppressive racism was in the U.S. in the 1940s. For me, I didn't find my life in America unbearable. I was definitely curious to see other places, to see how racism plays out elsewhere. But I didn't see my stay in Paris as a complete rejection of America. So, when you're ready, let's leave San Francisco books. We're headed to a Caribbean rum bar, where I'll tell you about the relationship between our writers and black intellectuals in France. Let's get going. With your back to the bookstore, take a right and continue walking in the same direction as before to the corner. Baldwin and Wright first met in New York in 1945. Wright had just published Black Boy, and Baldwin, 21 years old at the time, just showed up on Wright's doorstep one night and basically said, teach me. He wanted the famous author to take him on as an apprentice. Keep walking straight past the street coming up ahead on your right. Anyway, the famous author and the young apprentice really hit it off. Wright read some of Baldwin's work and was impressed. He recommended him for a grant, which allowed Baldwin to devote himself to writing his first novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain. At the crosswalk just ahead, cross the street at the crosswalk to your left towards that little island where you should see the yellow post box. Okay, cross towards the yellow post box here. Then cross the second crosswalk towards the cafe with the black awning called Ibu. Okay, now you should be next to the cafe called Le Ibu. Take the crosswalk in front of you. We're going down that street ahead between the wine and spirits store and the restaurant with the black awning. Are you walking down the small street? You should see a public bike stand to your left up ahead. Keep going straight past it. Back in New York, in 1945, Wright was more than happy to become Baldwin's mentor. But shortly thereafter, Wright was off to Paris and the acclaim that awaited him there. Wright was welcomed like a star here. Gertrude Stein, the doyenne of American expatriate writers in Paris, greeted him at the train station. She had written him a fan letter after reading one of his books, saying, It is obvious that you and I are the only two geniuses of this era. Representatives from the French Foreign Ministry and the American Embassy showed up at the station with not one, but two limousines. One for Wright's family, and one for their luggage. Continue straight, past the little street coming up to your right. Cross at the intersection ahead. I'll meet you on the other side. Cross the street up ahead here and turn right just after you cross. You should have just crossed the street and turned right, walking past those delicious cakes and pastries in the window. Keep going straight for now. 
Wright immediately fell in love with Paris. In a five-minute radio monologue, shortly after he got here, he raves about the French capital. Yes, the effect of Paris is deep. Paris does something to one, and what it does is good. I love this, my adopted city. Its sunsets, its teeming boulevards, its slow, humane tempo of life. To live daily amidst such a Paris does something to those who wish to allow their sensibilities to be affected by it. And just as the city of Paris is proportioned in the style of its architecture, so do I find its artists balanced and proportioned. This street, Rue de Seine, surely embodies what Wright loved about Paris. It was home to scores of famous writers and artists. At one time or another, people like Miles Davis, Chet Baker, John Coltrane, Ernest Hemingway, Jean-Paul Sartre, and Simone de Beauvoir lived or spent time here. Cross the street up ahead towards the furniture store with the greenish storefront, and turn left down that street. You should have just turned left. Walk along the storefront of this furniture store to your right and keep going straight for now. During Wright's early years here, in the late 1940s, there were probably about 500 African Americans, mostly students, living in Paris. And this neighborhood, Saint-Germain, was the perfect place to be. It's the intellectual heart of the city, as some of France's best universities are located here. Saint-Germain also had a vibrant café culture, including the famous Café de Flore and Les Deux Magots, which we'll visit later. Oh, and by the way, the covered market to your left was an exam center for students when our writers were here. It was renovated in 2016 and, following the pattern of change, now houses a bunch of high-end stores and food vendors. Okay, let's cross the street here towards the restaurant with the orange and black awning. Turn right down that street. Across the street to your right, you should be passing a Thai restaurant with a red awning a bit farther down. When Wright arrived in Paris, Jim Crow was still the law of the land in the south of the U.S. Blacks and whites couldn't even eat in the same restaurants together. So what Wright loved most about Paris was that it offered a refuge from the racism of his homeland. He once said that he felt more freedom in one square block of Paris than in the entire United States of America. At the intersection up ahead, head towards the crosswalk, slightly to your left. It's just after the metro entrance. Wait for the signal and cross the street towards those ATM machines to your left. I'll meet you there. Are you standing with the ATM machines to your left? Look across the street to the left. Do you see the orange cafe with big yellow letters that read La Romarie? That's where we're headed. Cross the street and I'll meet you outside. You should be going to your left now towards La Romarie. I'll meet you there. Stop here. Let's just take a look through the windows. La Romerie was founded by a black Frenchman from the Caribbean in 1932. If you look up inside through the window, you should see colorful checkered fabric motifs on lamps. A typical design of the French Caribbean, or Antilles. La Romerie quickly became a hangout for writers, including perhaps the best-known black French author, Aimé Césaire. So, Baldwin did not share Wright's idealized view of race relations in Paris. Baldwin was keenly interested in the experiences of French people of color, many of whom were from the Caribbean. Wright called Paris a city of refuge. And even though Baldwin recognized that life was easier here for African Americans, he also observed in 1958 that it didn't make sense to have fled his native fantasy only to embrace a foreign one. In other words, he rejected the idea that racism was not a problem in France just because life seemed to be easier for African Americans. Before we leave, take a look at the menu. 
You'll see it in the window to the left of the little staircase. Classic Caribbean cuisine. If you come back, try the Acras, homemade codfish fritters. And you should definitely sample the drink that gives this place its name, Caribbean rum. They have close to 80 different kinds on the menu. Now, let's head to our next stop. If you're facing the Romerie, let's walk down the little street immediately to the right. Did you turn down the small street? You should be walking along a pretty nondescript wall to your left. Keep going straight down this street for now. We're now on the Rue de l'Echaudet. I love this street because I feel like it hasn't changed much since Wright and Baldwin were here. It's really off the beaten path. And look at the architecture around you. This street dates back to the 14th century. You can tell that the buildings here are much older than the 19th century Hausmannian buildings that have come to characterize Paris. Keep going straight past the street coming up ahead. By the way, uh, Chester Himes, who I mentioned earlier, lived on that street. We'll talk more about him later. So, Richard Wright knew Aimé Césaire and the Senegalese writer Léopold Senghor. In 1947, he even helped them launch Présence Africaine, an influential pan-African literary magazine and publishing house that still exists today. But he and Baldwin had very different views on race relations here. Wright once made the claim that European colonization in Africa was actually liberating, that it even brought enlightenment to the continent. Baldwin disagreed. He would later write that black people, no matter where they were from, had at least one thing in common. It was, in his words, their precarious, their unutterably painful relation to the white world. But Richard Wright saw an acute difference between the white world of France and the white world of the United States. Let's hear another clip from Wright's love letter to Paris. There is no race tension or conflict. Men are not prejudged here on the basis of their skin color or nationality. And I have never heard a Frenchman tell anybody to go back where you came from. Cross the street and turn left at the corner right where you see the black storefront with the handbags on display in the windows. Keep straight. We'll keep walking for a few minutes down this street. In a 1968 interview with an American journalist, R.H. Darden, Baldwin again expresses a much less idealistic view on race relations in France. I'm asking you right out, if, if you had been an emigre from a French colony, would you not have been accepted as you were in Paris? <laughs> Assume. If I had been a penniless Arab on the streets of Paris, I would now be dead. When I was there during, the, during that war, the, Algerian, the French-Algerian War, uh, and one of the great crises was the idea of having a Muslim in the government, in the government of a Catholic country. I think Baldwin was critical of Wright for failing to see how his status as a wealthy American author affected his experience in Paris. In my experience, Race relations are much more complicated in France than they are in America. I've met North Africans who feel they're treated worse here than West Africans or Sub-Saharan Africans. Algerians who feel they're treated worse than Moroccans. Africans who feel they're treated worse than people from the Caribbean. Identity in France is so much more multidimensional than the black-white dichotomy that I was used to in the States. But it certainly doesn't mean that racism doesn't exist here. But both men loved this city, albeit for different reasons. Wright loved the architecture. Here are his own words. I find Paris a city whose sheer physical beauty feeds and nourishes the sensibilities of all those who live in it. This city, from the cobblestones that pave its narrow streets to the delicate, towering beauty of the Tour Eiffel, is a work of art. Merely to walk these ancient streets is to encounter aspects of architecture and urban landscapes that delight the eye. And James Baldwin loved the nightlife. There was no segregation, no black bars or white bars, just Parisians from all walks of life enjoying cheap bars and jazz clubs 
that helped give this neighborhood its bohemian vibe. Gordon Heath, an African-American actor, had a nightclub here on this street, and Baldwin was a regular. Baldwin would also hang out at Chez Inez, a nightclub and soul food joint run by Inez Cavanaugh, yet another African-American jazz singer that made the left bank her home. Okay, wait until it's safe and cross the street here. We're going to keep straight down Rue Jacob. You should have just crossed the street, but keep straight down Rue Jacob. We'll be following this street for a couple more minutes. So, being able to go out without having to worry about segregation was hugely liberating for both Wright and Baldwin. In his essay, Notes of a Native Son, James Baldwin recalls an evening when he deliberately went into a New York restaurant, knowing that, as a black man, he would not be served. He describes seeing fear in the white waitress's eyes as she approached his table to tell him, we don't serve Negroes here. Words he was accustomed to hearing over and over again, we don't serve Negroes here. He ends up throwing a drink in her face and being beaten and chased out of the bar. It was a turning point for him. He realized just how dangerous his rage could be. Paris, he hoped, would offer an escape. This reminds me of a little story of my own about my early days in Paris in the 90s when I was living out in the suburbs. I'd always made a point of catching the last metro. But soon enough, I wound up staying out past the metro closing time. I was in the center of Paris somewhere, and I needed a taxi. I'm originally from New York, and as many an African-American male will tell you, it's often very hard to get white taxi drivers to stop for you in my hometown. So I'm standing on a corner in the center of Paris, wearing a baseball cap and high-top sneakers, trying to hail a taxi at two in the morning. Finally, a taxi pulled up with a white driver, and just as the taxi stopped at the corner, a very well-dressed white couple came up on my shoulder. The taxi driver asked me where I was going. I told him. Then he turned to the white couple and asked them where they were going. I immediately started to get angry. But when the white couple told the driver where they were going, he said, Sorry, it's my last run of the night. He's going in my direction, so I'm going to take him. At the corner up ahead, turn right. So, anyway, I hopped in the taxi and off we went. This moment has stayed with me all these years because it marked the beginning of something I would soon become used to in France. Let's put it this way. There have been times when I've found myself in situations where, in the USA, the color of my skin would have been the decisive factor in how I was treated. Keep straight for now. We'll be passing a hotel shortly on your right. But in similar situations in France, the color of my skin has not even figured in the equation. American racism was not the prime reason I came to Paris. But let's just say there are a lot of things about my native country that I don't miss. So, now I want to take you to one of the places that James Baldwin called home. The Hotel de Vernoy. Baldwin arrived here in 1948 with just $40 in his pocket. He was following in the footsteps of his mentor, but didn't have the prestigious welcoming committee that awaited right when he came here. He was broke, didn't speak French, knew next to nobody here, and didn't even really have a place to stay. Okay, at the crosswalk coming up to your left, just to the left of Desange Hair Salon with the stone storefront, wait until it's safe and cross over to take that small street on the left. I'll meet you there. You should be walking past tall windows on your right, and up ahead, across the street on your left, you should see a wall covered with graffiti. That's where Serge Gainsbourg, one of France's most famous singers and songwriters, lived until his death in 1991. It's weird to see that much graffiti on a building in this neighborhood. But these are all tributes to Gainsbourg, who was a kind of raunchy, hard-drinking, hard-smoking French version of Bob Dylan. The Hotel Vernoy is just across the street from Gansborg's old home, 
It's coming up here on your right. The place with the old gas lamps out front. Stop when you're standing outside. You should be standing outside of Hotel Vernoy now, where you see the brown door with the gold handle. Let's stand outside while I tell you a bit more about the place. Of course, it has changed a lot since Baldwin was here. Like many of the places in the neighborhood, at the time it was a cheap, almost dingy hotel. Baldwin complained that there were no clean sheets or towels, no hot water, and no central heating. One of the reasons he spent so much time writing in nearby cafes. As you may notice, it was recently renovated and is now a pretty chic four-star boutique hotel. So this is where Baldwin wrote part of the essay that would set off his first dispute with Richard Wright. But before that happened, one of the first things Baldwin did when he got to Paris was look for his mentor, Richard Wright, and he found him in no time at all. Wright was delighted when the 24-year-old Baldwin suddenly showed up at the café Les Deux Magots. On that day, Wright happened to be meeting with his editor from Zero Magazine, a small but influential literary journal. On the spot, he suggested that his editor publish an essay by Baldwin. Baldwin, freshly arrived in Paris, was overjoyed. He found a hotel room and started writing. Let's keep moving. As you leave the hotel, turn around and head back in the direction we came from, passing Gansborg's house with all the graffiti. We're going to the cafes where the most pivotal moments in Wright and Baldwin's relationship occurred. Baldwin's essay for Zero magazine was entitled "Everybody's Protest Novel." Now, this is basically an attack on the protest novel, a literary genre where the author advocates for a social issue like gender or racial equality. Baldwin wanted to show how pleading the case for the oppressed. Often led to terrible writing, so he used Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe as the archetype of the well-intentioned, clumsily written protest novel. At the corner up ahead, turn right. Even though Uncle Tom's Cabin helped fuel the abolitionist movement, I would agree with Baldwin that it's it's a pretty awful novel, especially in its depiction of the title character. An obedient, kind-hearted slave who is only too happy to serve his masters. You should have just turned right onto Rue de Saint Pere. We're going to keep straight down this street for a few minutes. So back to Baldwin's essay. Near the end of the piece, Baldwin compares Uncle Tom to Bigger Thomas, the protagonist of Richard Wright's 1940 novel Native Son. The one about the black youth from Chicago who became a cold-blooded killer. Baldwin wrote that the contemporary Negro novelist and the dead New England woman seem to have all too much in common in their simplistic portrayals of black men. He called Bigger Uncle Tom's descendant, flesh of his flesh. Bigger Thomas, in his violence, was exactly the opposite of the kindly Uncle Tom. But they became two sides of the same racist cliche. Watch for cars and keep straight past the street ahead. Wright was understandably furious when he read Baldwin's essay. We're on our way to the Brasserie Lip, where Wright and Baldwin had their first dispute. But on the way, I want to show you a cafe that became very important to me. When I first arrived in Paris in 1993, one of the things I admire most about the French is their respect for artists in general, writers in particular. Keep going straight; you should be passing a huge university building across the street to your left. When I meet a French person for the first time and I tell them I'm a writer, their first question is, "What do you write?" When I meet an American for the first time and I tell them I'm a writer, Their first question is, "Would I have heard of you?" In America, at least in my experience, what counts is being a rich and famous writer. In France, it's simply the vocation of writer that garners respect. 
When I arrived in 1993, I had only published one book, and I knew only one person in France. One night, I learned that Ted Jones, an African American beat generation poet, was reading at a bookshop on the left bank. I went to the reading and was blown away. Ted was in his 60s at the time, and he read his poems in this amazing bebop style. Afterwards, I went up and talked to him, and he invited me to drop by his favorite cafe on the Boulevard Saint Germain. He had his own table in the corner of the terrace, and every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, Ted would be there and just sort of hold court. Keep straight past the street coming up to your right. Ted Jones was a magnificent storyteller and world traveler, and he had this knack for drawing people around him. During the spring and summer, he'd sometimes have 20 people turning up at the cafe to meet Ted. I think Ted was even in a guidebook at the time. You know, go see the Eiffel Tower and then visit Ted Jones at his cafe. Ted had lived a sort of Zelig-like existence turning up in all sorts of unlikely places. He'd been friends with the French founder of surrealism, André Breton, and he once showed me a photo of him and Charlie Parker. Bird had moved in with Ted in Greenwich Village after his wife kicked him out. Ted had never met Richard Wright, but he used to hang out here at his favorite cafe with James Baldwin. We are passing Ted's cafe to your right now, the Café Le Rouquet. It's on the corner with the white awning. I'll meet you there outside. Are you standing outside of Le Rouquet? Stand facing the windows on the left side of the cafe, but make sure that you're out of the main walkway. Take a look through the windows. This cafe is really evocative of the 50s. Check out the blackboard with the ice cream flavors displayed in blue chalk in the windows to your left, and the red leather seating and neon lighting. I love it. Not very many Parisian cafes have kept that 50s feel. I met so many people, thanks to Ted Jones. I would come by the cafe, meet someone here who would then invite me to dinner, and at dinner I'd meet another new friend. So Ted was at the root of my whole social life here. So now turn around so that your back is to the cafe. We're going to take the crosswalk just in front of you across to the other side of this big boulevard, the Boulevard Saint-Germain, and then take a left. Cross the street again to your left towards the luxury clothing store with all the bookshelves on display. Keep walking straight ahead for now. Ted Jones was also keeping alive the cafe culture of the Boulevard Saint-Germain. The cafes along this avenue were the hangouts for writers, artists, and intellectuals in the 1940s and 50s. You could order a cafe or cognac and spend the rest of the day writing at your table without the fear that some waiter would try to hustle you out the door. The cafes were warm and well-lit, unlike the cold, dark rooms many struggling writers lived in. So they became a, a natural gathering spot. They were like little debating societies where writers and artists could work out their philosophies and passionate arguments with their colleagues. Continue straight past the street coming up ahead on your right. Continue straight ahead. We're almost at the Brasserie Lip. In Baldwin and Wright's time, writers would come here not only because the neighborhood was full of intellectuals, but also simply because it was cheap. There were still a lot of working-class families in the neighborhood. Today, Saint-Germain is one of the most expensive neighborhoods in all of Paris. You may notice that the clientele in these places reflects this change. Okay, we're very close to our next stop now. Do you see the cafe with the orange awning called Brasserie Lip? Stop when you arrive in front. Okay, now when you're outside Brasserie Lip... Just stand off to the right so you don't block the entrance while I tell you about this place. So the day his essay, Everybody's Protest Novel, was published in the spring of 1949, Baldwin ran into Wright 
here at the Brasserie Lip. As I said, Richard Wright was furious. He felt his ungrateful young protege had betrayed him. Baldwin seemed perplexed by Wright's reaction and didn't know how to respond. He struggled to defend himself, but couldn't find the words. Wright, meanwhile, continued to tear into him. So that was their first confrontation, and it was the beginning of the end of their friendship. On a side note, you may be interested to know that the great American writer Ernest Hemingway actually mentions the Brasserie Lip in his memoir, A Movable Feast. In one of the chapters, he even talks about his favorite meal, sausage with potatoes, which is still on the menu. With Brasserie Lip behind you, take a look directly across the street. Do you see the cafe with the white awning and green text called Café de Flore? That's where we are headed next. Get yourself there safely. I'll meet you there. Let's stop for a minute outside Café de Flore while I give you a quick word of caution. This cafe tends to be really busy. In a minute, we're going to head inside for a quick drink or a coffee. But if you'd rather listen from outside, that's fine too. If you're facing the cafe, try to stand off on the right side so that you're not blocking the entrance. But if you do want to go in, pause me and take your headphones out first and be sure to sit down and order something. If you're feeling like Baldwin, why not try a cognac? If there's space, go up to the second floor and I'll tell you about who used to write up there. And by the way, when you go in, uh, the stairs are to your left. As you go up, check out the photos you see at the bottom of the staircase. I'll tell you why when you're settled. Unpause me after you've ordered. Café de Flore opened around 1887. In the early 1900s, a number of French poets, Apollinaire, Aragon, Marot, would have been seen here. It kept its intellectual clientele after the First World War, and during the Second World War, it was the intellectual nerve center for the writers and philosophers known as the Existentialists. This place is proud of its literary and artistic heritage. Did you see the photos near the bottom of the staircase? They were of people like Albert Camus, Pablo Picasso, and the powerhouse couple of the French intelligentsia, Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. When the Nazis occupied Paris starting in 1940, this was the most popular café on the left bank, where these thinkers would spend endless hours debating the war and visions of racism, feminism, colonialism, capitalism, all the important isms of the day. Oh, and speaking of uh, de Beauvoir, she was friends with Richard Wright and even ended up going to New York to visit him in 1947 when he returned briefly to the United States after his initial move to Paris. He showed her around Harlem, where they danced, listened to jazz together, and, of course, discussed America's agonizing race question. She writes about this trip in her book, America, Day by Day. De Beauvoir was not the only French author to take an interest in the African-American experience. Boris Vian, also among the group of French intellectuals that spent time here at Café de Flore, was an aficionado of both jazz and African-American literature. His novel, J'irai cracher sur vos tombes, I'll spit on your graves, in English, is set in the American South and tells the story of a black man's vengeance after his brother is lynched. Did you end up finding a spot on the second floor? Unfortunately, there are no photos of him, but Baldwin used to write up here. This was, in fact, where he finished that novel that had such an impact on me. Go tell it on the mountain. In one of his essays, he talks about Café Flore. It was his little escape from the small French hotel rooms where he could come with a pen and notebook to write, with the help of a lot of coffee and alcohol. If you're still inside, take your time and enjoy the ambiance. If you were here when Baldwin was in the early 50s, you surely would have been overwhelmed by the smell of smoke and coffee. 
And of course, you may uh, have even run into Camus, de Beauvoir, Sartre, or even Baldwin himself. Pause me if you'd like to spend a moment taking in the sights and sounds. When you're done, I'll meet you outside, and I'll tell you where we're headed next. Ready? With the cafe behind you, take the crosswalk to your left, across the street, and turn left down it. You'll be taking the little street to your left between the Louis Vuitton store and Café Flore. Okay, now stay on the right side of the street. We're going to be looking at the place with the word Montana written in red neon letters above the entrance. It'll be across the street to your left. Stop when you see it. In the 1950s, Montana used to be a jazz club, frequented by Baldwin and other members of the left bank intellectual circle. The vibrant nightlife of Saint-Germain-des-Prés allowed Baldwin to cultivate his literary friendships and explore his sexuality as a young gay man. His 1956 novel, Giovanni's Room, tells the story of a white American man, David, who comes to Paris and falls into a passionate affair with an Italian man, Giovanni. It was certainly easier to be black and openly gay in Paris back then than it was in the United States, where sodomy laws that outlawed sexual encounters between gay men existed in all 50 states. Montana is no longer a jazz club. It's now a boutique hotel and a very exclusive nightclub. Okay, let's get to our next stop. Continue in the same direction down this street. Stop for a moment when you're outside of number 13. It's a pretty nondescript gray cement building, and it's the last place on the corner before the crosswalk. Paris has been known as a jazz city ever since the arrival of African-American musicians and dancers in the 1920s. People like Sidney Bechet and Josephine Baker were able to start and sustain careers here that failed to take off in the U.S. Are you standing outside of number 13? Stop here. I want to tell you a quick little anecdote. This used to be home to the Saint-Germain-des-Prés Club. It opened during the summer of 1948, just a few months after Baldwin arrived in Paris. On the inauguration night, it was so packed that the police had to block traffic all the way down the big boulevard Saint-Germain that we walked on earlier. In June 1948, 1,000 people flocked here for a Duke Ellington concert. Jazz legends such as Lester Young, Kenny Clark, Miles Davis, Coleman Hawkins, and Art Blakey also performed here. Josephine Baker's song, J'ai deux amours, reflects her attachment to the city. It translates to, I have two loves, which were her country and Paris. After World War II, she insisted on changing the lyrics slightly. The end of the chorus became, My country is Paris. She eventually became a French national and renounced her American citizenship. Okay, now let's keep walking down this street in the same direction as before. We're headed to one of the last remaining Saint-Germain jazz clubs. Chez Papa. Things changed when the Nazis occupied Paris between 1940 and 1944. Most African-American jazz musicians fled the country. But Josephine Baker stayed in France. She even worked as an undercover agent for the French Resistance and was awarded the Légion d'Honneur, France's most distinguished honor for her service to her adopted homeland. After the war, African-American jazz artists flocked back to Paris. Nina Simone, who was also a close friend of James Baldwin, Kenny Clark and Johnny Griffin are some of the most famous African-American musicians to have later lived and died in France. 
Our next stop is the place up ahead with the big orange awning in front of the public bike share stand. Stop when you're outside. Stop here outside of the jazz club. Chez Papa has been around since the 1960s. It's still dedicated to recreating the environment of the era when jazz clubs were an integral part of this neighborhood. It's often closed during the day, but the decor on the inside is worth seeing. Many jazz artists and patrons have written and drawn all over the walls. Okay, with your back to the jazz club, turn right. We're going to turn right at the corner up ahead. Oh, by the way, take a look across the street ahead to your left. You may see a place called Josephine Bakery. Place with the gray awning and orange text. It's a pun, of course. Turn right at the corner here. At the corner up ahead, turn right onto Rue Bonaparte, where you'll see the cafe with the wood storefront. Let's pick up with our writers. After his first attack on Wright's work in 1949, Baldwin struggled to get his career off the ground. Maybe it was out of frustration or the need to earn some cash, but for whatever reason, after avoiding each other for two years, he again went on the offensive against Wright. Okay, now head down this street, Rue Bonaparte, until you get to the corner. Two years after everybody's protest novel, Baldwin wrote a second essay called Many Thousands Gone. It was a 20-page demolition of Richard Wright's native son. Keep going straight. In his second essay, Baldwin does more than just mention native son in passing, as he did in everybody's protest novel. This time, it's a full-blown assault on Wright's book. For Baldwin, the protagonist of Native Son, Bigger Thomas, is defined by his sheer violence. Baldwin thought it was an oversimplification of the black experience, and that it further fueled the stereotypes of black men. He said that Wright's premise is that black is the color of damnation. Keep walking straight ahead, and make sure it's safe before you cross the street coming up. We're headed to the scene of Wright and Baldwin's final clash at the cafe where they were first reunited in Paris. Now, Baldwin's critique is not entirely wrong. I think Native Son is, in a certain sense, a limited book. But in my view, you can't deny the power of Wright's novel and the force of its writing. Through his portrayal of Bigger Thomas, Wright shows the dehumanizing effects of American racism. So a couple of years later, in May 1953, Wright was hanging out in his apartment with another African-American author, newly arrived in Paris, Chester Himes. Wright had written a rave review of Himes's first novel, If He Hollers, Let Him Go. The phone rang. It was Baldwin calling. The ex-protégé was asking to borrow money from his ex-mentor. You should be passing the Saint-Germain-de-Pré church across the street to your left. Let's stop for a second to enjoy the view. It's a landmark in the neighborhood. It used to be a Benedictine abbey, and it's the oldest church in Paris. The abbey dates all the way back to the 6th century. Now if you turn to continue walking in the same direction as before, just in front of you, you'll see the iconic café where Baldwin, Wright, and Himes met. It's called Les Deux Magots. Do you see the green awning? Let's go there now. So Wright made an appointment with Baldwin at that café and asked Himes to come along. Himes didn't want to miss the spectacle. Keep walking until you reach the front entrance to the café. You should be standing outside of the Dumago with the big brown revolving doors in front of you. Let's stand outside for a minute. Well, this is where Baldwin and Wright had their final epic confrontation in 1953. For hours, Baldwin and Wright, with Himes looking on, fought over their intellectual, social, and political differences. Apparently, Wright did give Baldwin some money, but 
no one knows if he ever got it back. Now, this is our last stop. I'm going to tell you how the story ends, and it'll take a few minutes. So, if you want to go into the cafe and order something while you listen, just pause me, take your headphones out, order something, and unpause me for the rest of the story when you're seated and ready. Are you ready? Let's finish up our story. So, there were three very different versions of what happened here at Les Deux Magots in May 1953. After Wright's death, James Baldwin wrote that it was a wonderful evening, that he, Himes, and Wright had a lively but friendly intellectual conversation, that Himes and Wright brought out the best in each other, and they both brought out the best in him. Wright had a very different memory. He considered Baldwin a ruthless opportunist who wanted to make his name as a writer by tearing down the best-known black author of the time. Wright said that Baldwin actually threatened to destroy him, to ruin his reputation. So Chester Himes is watching all of this, and he offers a more nuanced depiction of what happened. I sat and looked from one to the other, Himes wrote, Wright playing the fat cat and forcing Baldwin into the role of the quivering mouse. Wright mocked Baldwin and criticized him for having attacked his work. Baldwin defended himself with such vigor that he was actually trembling. According to Himes, Baldwin's point came down to this. The powers that be on the American literary scene would only allow one black writer at a time to enter the arena of fame. Baldwin, it seemed, wanted to take Wright's place. Himes wrote that the last thing he heard Baldwin say that night was, The sons must slay their fathers. After many hours, the three men parted ways. Though Wright and Baldwin continued to socialize in some of the same Paris circles, their feud remained toxic for the next seven years. In November 1960, Wright died an untimely death in Paris at the age of just 52. To this day, some suspect he was assassinated for being, in the words of an American intelligence report, the potential leader of a worldwide alliance of colored people. Like many intellectuals of that time, he was also associated with communist and socialist sympathizers. But I don't think we'll ever really know what happened. Soon after Wright's death, Baldwin did indeed become America's most acclaimed black author. In 1963, he published The Fire Next Time, one of the defining literary works of the Civil Rights era. He attended the March on Washington, befriended both Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, and went to the White House to meet with President John F. Kennedy and his brother, the Attorney General Bobby Kennedy, to educate them on racial issues. James Baldwin became more famous than Richard Wright had ever been in his own lifetime. In Alas, Poor Richard, an essay he published a year after Wright's death, Baldwin agonizes over his relationship with his ex-mentor. Why did he write the two essays attacking Native Son? Baldwin admits that he saw Wright's work as a roadblock in his own literary path. He expresses guilt over having hurt Wright's feelings. In fact, he says that he had never given Wright credit for having human feelings. In Baldwin's own words, he had never really been a human being for me. He had been an idol, and idols are created in order to be destroyed. When someone died, my Paris mentor Ted Jones used to say that person had gone on to the ancestors. Today, Ted Jones, Chester Himes, Richard Wright and James Baldwin have all gone on to the ancestors. But their works will live on forever 
They will continue to inspire me and generations of African-American writers to come. Thank you for exploring Wright and Baldwin Saint-Germain with me today. And if you're in this neighborhood and you pass by the Café Le Rouquet, you might catch me on the terrace, sitting in the corner at Ted Jones' old table. Merci et au revoir.